0: This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. My guest this week is Brittany Barnett. Brittany grew up in rural East Texas and uh, overcame a lot of obstacles and got the job she thought she always wanted. She became, in her words, Claire Huxtable. About as soon as she got that job, she realized that maybe it wasn't the job she wanted, so she reinvented herself, and now she does something completely different and really cool. So without further ado, I give you Brittany Barnett. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and um shut down my video.
1: All right, me too.
0: Okay. My guest today is Brittany Barnett. Brittany, among many other accomplishments, is the author of A Knock at Midnight, which has been recently published in uh, September of 2020. So we're going to talk about that. Um, Welcome, Brittany. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Brittany, let's just dive right in. Um, You, at at some point, you decided to become a lawyer. Um, What was it that led you to make that decision? How did you get there?
1: You know, as cliche as it may sound, I always wanted to be a lawyer. Like even from kindergarten, first grade, When asked what did I want to be when I grew up, lawyer was always what I would say. And I, growing up in a small town in rural East Texas, the older I got, I just started to feel like becoming a lawyer was out of my league. And I shifted gears in high school and decided to focus on finance and accounting. But when I look back in hindsight, I think my dreams of becoming a lawyer became limited because I didn't know any. There were no lawyers in the rural community where I grew up in East Texas, and there surely weren't any black women lawyers. The closest person I knew, air quotes, as a lawyer, who was a lawyer, was Claire Huxtable on The Cosby Show, who looked <laughs> like me. You America's know? family, and, uh, right? America's family. So once I got to college, I um, got a bachelor's and master's in accounting and went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, an accounting firm. And one of my mentors from college, I was borrowing his books to study for the CPA exam. And I remember telling him I wanted to go to law school just to kind of, you know, see what he would say. And he was like, Oh, you should really go to law school. You know, I think you'd be great. And he's like, and I got accepted into law school at SMU in Dallas. I'm going to start in the fall. And I remember being so happy for him and then leaving and thinking, wait a minute. Now, if he can go to law school, I know I can go to law school. And so that's where it started. You know, I I truly feel that representation matters and just being, knowing someone who was going down a similar path motivated me more than, than he could ever know.
0: So when you were a child and you had that childlike aspiration to be a lawyer, what did that look like in your, in your mind's eye?
1: Claire Huxtable, power suit briefcase corporate
0: law. Okay. And then as it turned out, you actually did that. You actually, I don't want to say became Claire Huxtable, but you're, you're, you you go to school, you get a, a BA, you, you become an accountant at a, what are they? I don't know what they call them anymore. Like the, the big, big, Five. Four. big four now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you've, you've made it right. Like you, black woman from rural East Texas mm-hmm. makes it to big four accounting firm and decides maybe, maybe I'll just go ahead and do that law school thing. Um, I imagine that having finished law school and when did you finish law school?
1: 2011.
0: So I imagine that, um, having ascended to big four accounting firm and then becoming also a a lawyer, um, you had a lot of opportunities to pick the job you wanted.
1: Yeah. You know, it really was something that I could leverage having that, business background and having worked a couple of years before going to law school, it definitely opened uh, more doors than I think would have been otherwise. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, you did, you did do that. You went into corporate law, like were you doing mergers and, I mean, you were doing pretty high level, big law firm stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I started with corporate finance. You know, we worked on a lot of syndicate deals, um, started a law firm, Winstead, here in Dallas. Um, and then about three years after I went in house to Orix corporation, which is a Japanese based company. Um, and I was here in their U S and Latin headquarters. And so I focused on mergers and acquisitions.
0: And, and I that's probably a job with a pretty good salary. Very good. Okay. <laughs> now and I don't want to, uh, as I said, in the intro you you are the author of a knock at midnight and, and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna uh, steal all the plot from the book uh because people should go buy that but um but early in the book you reveal a couple of things which which sort of um, cause you to shift focus and one of those things is your own um, mother's story and the other is a moment where you vividly recall being in a law library and realizing that maybe this Claire Huxtable pathway was not your thing. You want to take it from there?
1: Yeah. So, growing up, my mom was a nurse. And, you know, from the outside looking in, we had the normal family. My mom was a nurse. My stepdad worked at the local coal mine, you know, both ideal jobs from our small piece of rural Texas. And, you know, but my mom suffered from drug addiction and ultimately it led to her incarceration, which brought me very proximate to this issue of mass incarceration because now, you know, the population included my mama.
0: Yeah, It was no longer a theoretical thing.
1: Yeah, at all. It was a lived experience. And so.
0: As my, former, as my former mentor used to tell me, um, and I've said this on the, sh- on the podcast several times, so pe- regular listeners may get tired of hearing it, but um, my former mentor, Ernie Williams, told me one time that everybody loves justice until they get a little dose. Right. So and when then it's you your see, own ha- mom locked up, um, how old were you when that happened?
1: I was a young adult. I was 22 when my mom went okay. to prison. Um, Did
0: you have siblings that were still in the home?
1: No, my sister was twenty-one.
0: Okay. Um, nonetheless, you're a young adult, and your mom gets locked up. What kind of sentence did she did she get?
1: Yeah, for sure. I we were still greatly impacted by my mom's incarceration. She received an eight-year sentence, and in the Texas state prisons, and literally, it was for a crime committed. Gosh, like eight years before. There were no new crimes committed, um, except against herself. And that was because of the drug addiction. She kept failing her drug test. She kept not showing up to report, more failed drug tests, so she would get more probation, more probation.
0: Oh, i see. okay. So she got treatment. into that she got into that spiral where you wind up you you start with a misdemeanor. Yeah, uh, and then you turn it into a, a big time. I say you turn it into you start with a misdemeanor and a manageable, theoretically manageable, corrective action by the justice system. And, um, soon enough, the justice system has decided to throw you away.
1: Exactly. So instead of treatment for addiction, my mom got sent to prison.
0: All right. So that you have that. And then while you're in law school, and I assume by this time your mom is actually serving sentence, um, while you're in law school you have a moment in the library where you you have like a surreal experience um, connecting the dots between a story you're seeing uh, about someone else and your own family
1: yeah absolutely i'm in my second year of law school at smu taking a critical race theory course and for the paper i was writing for the course i just wanted to include human stories you know about disproportionate sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine, and had a story of a man from East Texas, where I was from, actually a childhood friend, and I wanted to include a woman. And I, I literally just did a Google search and typed in woman life, federal prison or something like that. And the story of Sharonda Jones pulled up and and that is is a story not only of a woman serving a life without parole sentence for a first time drug offense, but it's a story that changed my life forever.
0: Okay, so <clears throat> let's get a little bit of the facts of Sharonda out. Um, she, you mentioned she uh, winds up going to prison under a life without parole federal sentence, which means what it sounds like. It means you go to prison and that's where you die, uh, and nothing you can do will change that.
1: Exactly. Um, well,
0: almost nothing. Um, so. Uh, what is it that, how did she actually get that sentence? It seems like that's the kind of sentence that you should only get if you are like a, a cartel mastermind or a uh, a, a Sicario assassin, um, you know, Tony Montana kind of thing. It doesn't sound like she was that.
1: Yeah, you know, going in, that's what I thought, <laughs> you know, like these sentences are only reserved to the most depraved souls, right? And so... I'm thinking there has to be more to the story. Like there has to be some bodies, you know, someone was
0: multiple. Prior or
1: something. Exactly. Exactly. So I started really digging into her case almost in an obsessive way because her story just tugged at my soul. And I found just the opposite. There was none of that. Sharonda was a true first time. Nonviolent offender as they call them. Um, but she truly was a woman who had never even been arrested for a traffic ticket before. And here she was set to die and spend the rest of her natural life in prison, you know, and it was, it was appalling to me. The more I did my research, I was shocked, very shocked.
0: So what was she actually convicted of that triggered that kind of sentence?
1: Sharonda was convicted under federal drug conspiracy laws
0: all right so did she i mean what was her what evidence was there of her own personal criminal conduct because i want to i'll flesh out the the conspiracy element in a minute but what did she actually do
1: her role that she participated in in this conspiracy was she knew a drug supplier in houston she knew a family Husband and wife that sold drugs in Dallas, and they wanted to be connected. And she was the mutual party that connected them. And she would, on a handful of occasions over a couple of years, transport powder cocaine from Dallas to Houston from the supplier to this couple in Dallas. And she would get paid, you know, about a thousand dollars a trip. That was her foray into the drug conspiracy world. However, at trial, the only evidence the government had against Sharonda was the word of that supplier and that couple from Dallas who testified against her.
0: And they want a 5K one.
1: Yes. Okay. So
0: let's all right. So let's let's tease this stuff out a little bit. So clearly, clearly she did some things that might deserve or do deserve. Some consequences. It's not as she no was literally just standing there on the corner minding her own business. She did exactly. He something to deserve that's never something. been the
1: argument. Right. Exactly. Okay. Right. Yep. So
0: it's a proportionality problem, it seems like to me.
1: It's excessive sentencing.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then all right. So um the in 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 criminal court, for the listeners that may not do criminal work, in criminal court it, it you can be held responsible for the essentially, you know. I mean, this is not maybe a a strictly accurate legal description, but in criminal court, under a conspiracy charge, you can essentially be held responsible criminally for the worst acts of anyone connected to the conspiracy, whether you ever knew them or not, and whether you ever meant to participate in that person's wrong or not. So once the government starts to draw a circle around a group of people and call them a, a group of conspirators, the least culpable among them can be sentenced essentially to the worst conduct of the worst person in the circle exactly all right so that's sort of that's what happened to her but in her case the government also used the worst the kingpins if you will sounds like to testify against her to draw her into the circle of conspiracy and the government probably i'm guessing offered those kingpins to turn witness against her, they offered them some kind of sentence reduction or improvement in their scenario.
1: You're absolutely right. That's exactly what happened. You know, with federal conspiracy, you just need an agreement between two or more people to to traffic drugs. And in Sharonda's case, the drug supplier and that couple from Dallas, they, all three served less than 10 years in prison.
0: So the people that, if we were to draw an organizational chart, the people who were her superiors flipped, testified against her, got less than 10 years to serve, and the government put Sharonda in prison for life.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, (laughs) And she's the only
1: one that chose to you know, utilize her constitutional rights to go to trial. She'd never been in trouble before. She didn't know the system. The other people who testified against her, the main witnesses, you know, they, they were very familiar with the system. Sharonda Jones was not.
0: Was there something about Sharonda that made the government want to put a big target on her like that, or did, did was it just that she had the audacity to stand up and say, maybe I'd like to have a trial?
1: You know, I think it's a little bit of, of both. You know, she had the audacity to go to trial. So she was taxed with, you know, what we call the trial penalty. And on top of the fact that... Yeah,
0: she did not accept responsibility for her... for her Exactly. Like, exactly. Clearly, yeah, she you're wanted... Innocent, to, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty, unless, of course, you're being sentenced in federal court, in which case they punish you for having had the audacity to go to trial rather yeah. than rather <laughs> than bow and scrape and, and, and beg mercy.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So you know, once she's in that bubble of trial, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna, they as in the government is gonna throw everything at her that they can.
0: Okay, so you you hear about Sharonda or you find her story while you're a, a, a 2L, second year law student. Meanwhile, you complete the, the path or the, the career path trajectory to Claire Huxtable somehow Sharonda doesn't leave your your mind and so are you like living in two different places how, how mentally uh, uh how's that how does that work how do you go from get the you know you you leave law school and get the big law firm you become in-house counsel but but all the while there's this thing out there kind of calling to you is that sort of what happened
1: yeah exactly once I came across Sharonda's case learn more about it met her in person you know her case just truly tugged at my soul there was no way that i could know that i was a part of a legal system as a lawyer that allowed this to happen and not (laughs) help you know and so i i took her case with me everywhere i went i would literally move billion dollar deals by day and work on her case pro bono at night
0: Now, how did you, did you like contact her or did, did you, did you contact the lawyers trying to help her or or how did that happen?
1: Well, there were no lawyers trying to help her. So in law She was done.
0: She'd run out her, she'd run out her trial and appellate public, I assume public defenders. And she was just done.
1: She was done. And so in law school, when I came across her case, I sent her a card. So I reached out to her. And from there, you know, she was, I'm in Dallas, Texas, she was incarcerated at Carswell Federal Prison in Fort Worth, Texas, and so I would go visit, and we we formed a relationship from that, really becoming like family before
0: you could even help her officially.
1: Exactly. Wow.
0: All right. So, power suit, billion dollar deals by day, uh, driving over to see Sharonda uh, on your own time.
1: hmm Exactly. <laughs> uh,
0: and at some point. Um, at some point you decide, uh, I can't, uh, I, my heart's not aligned with what I'm doing by day. I think I'm going to do this, um, this, this, what my heart's calling me to do. How long into your, um, in-house career is that?
1: It was about two years into my in-house career, five years into my law career. You know, I had taken on not only Sharonda's case, but ended up taking on a few others pro bono, same exact issues with this federal drug conspiracy and draconian sentencing. And, you know, it was during the time President Obama was in office with his clemency initiative, and I really just wanted to do more. You know, I was in a place where I had a lot of internal conflict. I truly loved what I did as a corporate lawyer. I cannot say that I did not. I love the art of the deal, having my thumbprint, you know, on the pulse of global power. It was something just about that rush. But I got to a point where I couldn't. I didn't want to do both, you know. I couldn't give a hundred percent to both. It was it's just impossible. And I decided um, in 2016 to resign from corporate law to, to truly follow my passion to transform the criminal justice system. If I'm
0: I I, I don't know this, but I'm gonna guess that m- maybe everyone but your mom was like, are you crazy? <laughs> you, you, you're walking away from a career that, that countless people have, have dreamed of when they're a little girl or a little boy and, and you're gonna do this thing where you help people who are drug dealers? And I'm not, I, I, I don't really mean it that way, but like from the, f- there must have been people that looked at you and said, that sounds like something stupid.
1: Yeah. You know, luckily for me and my support system and people who truly know me and my heart, they support the decisions that I make. But there were a few people around me, you know, that were like, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, make the big dollars and then just write a check to the organizations that are doing this work. And I'm like, there's no, there, there are none, you know, none are truly focused on, on these drug cases and these life sentences handed down for drugs. And so, yeah, absolutely. I have people that were like, huh, you're going to leave money for something that you have get no money for. So yeah.
0: I mean, and let's be clear what you did. You did walk away from money.
1: I did walk away from um, a lot of money.
0: Okay. And, uh, and we've I've talked about this with another guest on the show earlier, uh, judge Kevin Sharp, but I'm assuming that at least some of these cases that you then decide to take on the only hope that these people have to, to get out from under the sentence that they've been given is a, is an act of the president. They they have no more appeals. They have no more judges to see. There is no other anything except the president's pen.
1: Absolutely. A lot of times all the avenues of relief have been exhausted and all that's left is Clemency from a president of the United States, you know, and clemency is a exclusive power granted to the president of the United States through the constitution.
0: And so you have to go, and there's a specific procedure and all that. So you, you leave corporate, corporate law, big bucks and, and, and all that, and dive into this, um, effort to save individuals from, these, these sentencing laws and, and situations, um, without ruining the book, what becomes of Sharonda?
1: Sharonda Jones, after many years of fighting for her freedom, you know, was granted clemency through the gracious and generous mercy of, of President Barack Obama.
0: How long had she served by then?
1: 16 years and nine months.
0: So she served more than the people that were higher up on the organizational chart ever did.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. That's, that seems, um, well, good for you. Good for her. How's she doing now? If you know,
1: she's, she's doing great. When Sharonda was arrested, she, she's always been an entrepreneur. She's from small rural East Texas as well. And she had a soul food
0: kitchen, right? she
1: had a soul food kitchen. She did. And she's an incredible cook. She loves to cook. And so she is, has started her own company. She has a food truck and she will be hiring formerly incarcerated people to work the food truck. She's in the process now of making the inside of the truck, you know, how, however she needs to have it to conform mm-hmm. with city code and, you know, all that intricate design that comes with the inside of food trucks. So that's the, the part of her journey she's at now, but she's really excited. She she's cooking again.
0: All right. So have, have for any listeners in the, uh, where is she? And is she in Fort Worth?
1: She's in Dallas,
0: Dallas. Do you know the name of the food truck? You want to, it's wanna called,
1: it it, it's called fed up and <laughs> it's a play on uh, the federal government. <laughs> it's, it's a play on being fed up layers. with the system. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's levels to that, right?
1: Levels, and it's a play on you know just having your your stomach fed uh, through her delicious. Oh, that's food. pretty
0: clever. All right, so the food yeah. truck is fed up, and I bet it's good. Uh, so uh, you've done this on behalf of many people, then, and this is your full time gig now. Um, yes. All right. So let me let me see if I can because and and you tell you tell these and other stories in the book, uh, and. And so, people that are interested can order that book. Uh, it's Amazon, or or where else can they get it?
1: At any local bookstore, Amazon. If you prefer to listen, it's on Audible.
0: Okay. And the book is a knock at midnight.
1: Yes, the book is a knock at midnight. All right.
0: And it was published just this this month, September 2020. Yes. All right. So let me let me kind of shift focus and ask you, um, obviously, you're doing what you're doing on behalf of these individuals after the fact. Do you have any thoughts on what we as a culture and a country should be doing on the front end to make it so that your job as a back-end advocate for clemency is no longer necessary? What kind of... Structural changes should we be contemplating and making in our country to prevent the, um, the, the sequence of events that happens to your mom, that happens to Sharonda, and that happens to countless other people every day?
1: Well, the first thing is we have to educate ourselves that this issue exists. Um, I recommend reading books on the subjects like Just Mercy by Bryan Stevenson, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander.
0: And this issue, you mean uh, this, this horrendous uh, sentencing structure, sentencing guidelines where um, drug offenses sometimes lead to life sentences and um, other crimes that the public might think were far more heinous don't.
1: Exactly, exactly. This issue, I'm meaning excessive sentencing in the okay. criminal justice system.
0: And to be clear, you're not advocating that people who commit crime shouldn't be punished.
1: Absolutely not. There crime. are consequences, it, you know, for it's action. It's a
0: proportionality problem.
1: It's a it's a true proportionality problem and I will provide even more clarity that I don't feel everyone should go to prison for the for those crimes. You know, yeah. I think that we we are such a punitive nation that stripping people of their liberty <laughs> It's like the first thing that we go to, but my my mom did not deserve to go to prison.
0: Your mom was a nurse. Um, was she? Did she develop a substance abuse problem um, with medicines that were available to her uh, at work?
1: She didn't. My mom was addicted to crack cocaine. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: all right. So sometimes people, good people wind up being exposed to something um, and then they develop an addiction and the system quickly immediately um, labels them a criminal and starts dealing with them um, as a criminal instead of as an addict to or or as an addict instead of criminal and if you were to break the cycle of addiction you might not be dealing with someone who was inclined towards criminal behavior
1: Exactly. And one of the things, you know, you asked what people could do, you know, is also look at it, whether you're a bleeding heart or not. There's also this other element of sentencing people like Sharonda to die in prison, which is the cost to taxpayers, the economic element. I mean, we spend over, as a country, over $80 billion a year on incarceration. Those $80 billion is taxpayer money. And so, do you want your tax dollars going towards a system that's locking the Sharonda Joneses of the world up for life?
0: Well, what do you happen to know what percentage of the $80 billion is, um, let's say, nonviolent drug um, offenses?
1: I don't. And it's
0: it seems not like for probably lack of a lot. Right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, It's not for lack of trying. It's just that data in in this system of mass incarceration is incomplete like we and that's one thing too that i take with my corporate experience of mergers and acquisitions there's no way as corporate lawyers as business men and women companies would invest 80 billion dollars in something and not track the outcomes but that's well, what we're doing as as a country with the criminal justice system the data is very sp- very very sparse.
0: yeah so um if if you were the master of the universe and you had the opportunity to tell um people let's take that 80 80 billion and instead of putting it all into punitive and incarceration events let's reallocate it towards these other things and see if we can't drive down the actual criminal activity and addiction com- problems, what would those other things be that you would recommend be funded or or addressed?
1: Education, number one. If we have teachers that barely are making living wages, you know, but education would definitely be number one. Healthcare, and that includes healthcare for drug addiction. I think we see now with the horrible opioid epidemic that this issue with opioids is is being treated as a public health issue. And it truly is a public health issue, you know, but so was crack cocaine when the crack epidemic hit in the late eighties, but instead it was demonized and criminalized. And so healthcare.
0: Yeah. I remember I I'm old enough to have lived through the, just say no, Mm -hmm. which is catchy. Um, but as it turns out a terribly incomplete, uh, plan.
1: Yes, because it was still a public health crisis, you know. Because,
0: yeah, and the back end of just say no was, and if you don't, we'll take you away from your family and your community and send you somewhere in the United States forever. leaving exactly. behind, Leaving behind the wreckage of a broken family that now has even less resources and opportunity to elevate themselves out of the scenario that they were in to begin with.
1: Is a true, true ripple effects you know and that's something i mean imagine the
0: scenario if you and your sister instead of being 21 or 22 had been um two and one and then left with you know a single parent family um because your mom had been removed from the family on account of her addiction
1: oh i i can't imagine you know because even though my mom suffered from addiction she still is very much a part of our lives you know so i can't imagine being well, do you think and you'd and have become what, what you, you became?
0: Do you think you'd have become what you became? The Claire Huxtable story?
1: I think the role would have been harder. Right. I won't say that I wouldn't have because I had yeah, a it's hard support to know. Yeah, system, I mean, but I think it, the role would have been much harder, you know, and, and for people, you know, that are just tuning in to this issue of mass incarceration and draconian sentencing, you know, that's something I wanted to really get across in the book that I wrote, A Knock at Midnight. You know, I just want people to see The true loss of mass incarceration, you know, is not just the lives stolen by injustice, but it's just the beauty and brilliance that each incarcerated person might have contributed to our world. You know, if their life. The fed up food truck. I mean, like on a
0: on a microscopic level, not to diminish what Sharonda's doing, but like, is the world a better place with Sharonda running fed up food truck, or is the world a better place with Sharonda serving out a life sentence? Well, I'm voting for the food truck.
1: I'm voting for the food truck, too. And, I, and I've had some of the food she's going, going to have on that menu, and trust me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so you, would, uh, you would advocate reallocating resources uh, into the edu- the, literally the education system, um, teacher salaries. Um, what else might you suggest?
1: Uh, Health care, for sure, and other social services to help people deal with trauma but also helping people with not just trauma, but different funds to help people with entrepreneurial spirits to thrive. You know, it's hard when people are in survival mode every day to truly fulfill their heart's desires. Like I said, Sharon was an entrepreneur. She had two businesses, you know?
0: Yeah. If you're, if you're, really if you're trying to decide paid. whether to pay the water bill or the electricity bill, it's kind of hard to generate the traction to launch a food truck. Exactly. So, um, is the, is the, are the sentencing guidelines at the federal level hitting, uh, the minority population harder than the non-minority population?
1: Absolutely. Without a doubt. For example, on the federal level with the life without parole sentences for drugs, we'll just keep it there over 85% of people serving life without parole sentences for drugs are black and brown people.
0: Hmm. And how do, we, how do we square that with the fact that black and brown people represent less than 50% of the population at large? Like how, do I, how am I supposed to understand? That seems like an impossible outcome to get on the law of averages and i'm not a mathematician or even an accountant but that just seems that seems out of whack
1: it's very out of whack when it's not tethered to something and i think for people to truly understand it they have to be honest with themselves and take a look at this country and realize that that is tethered to the fact that our drug laws in this country and many other laws in this country are inherently racist
0: and how so make that argument i'm not i'm not saying you're wrong but if a if a law on the book says, "Hey, if you traffic, um, say two kilos of cocaine, that qualifies as this penal this crime with this penalty."
1: Yeah, I'll break it down.
0: Yeah, tell me how. And again, I'm not arguing that you're wrong. I just want to. I want you to connect yeah, the dots. How absolutely. do I How do I turn that into something that is a a, a racist um, as applied or outcome?
1: So, in this 2L law year that I had where I was really diving deep into the law of how did we get here? How am I a part of a legal system that allows Sharonda Jones to be locked up for life? I came across the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act where mandatory minimums were put into place, meaning you can't be sentenced below a specific sentence, and where the, this 100 to 1 ratio was put into place.
0: talking about the crack powder
1: yeah so what i mean by that is there was a hundred to one ratio in this 1986 drug abuse act anti-drug abuse act that created an extreme disproportionate sentencing between powder cocaine and crack cocaine so you could have 500 grams of powder cocaine i could have five grams of crack cocaine and we would receive the same prison sentence. (laughs) But when you look further behind those numbers and you'll see that mostly at the time, white wealthier people were using powder cocaine and black people, people of color were using crack cocaine. So you had in and of itself a law codified in the books that was punishing a drug dealt with more by the black community, extremely more severely than a drug dealt with at the time by mostly white community. And so that's what I mean when I say, when we look at the disproportionate amount of black and brown people in prison today that we have to take a, a step back and look beyond that to see how they got there.
0: So what's the status of, the, of that 100 to one ratio now?
1: That hundred to one ratio, luckily, through President Obama, was reduced to 18 to one as a compromise. It should be one to one, because powder and crack cocaine are two forms of the same drug. You couldn't even have crack without powder. Uh, but
0: yeah, the recipe you know, for crack for anyone is cocaine. start with powder.
1: It starts with powder. And so you know, a lot of people were pushing for a one-to-one 1 ratio, including the Obama administration. But you know how things are when you get to Congress and the floor and the voting. You well,
0: know, no nobody wanted compromise. to go back to their nobody wanted to go back to their mostly white district and explain how they had lightened up on crack cocaine.
1: Not at all. So they came to a compromise of eighteen to one.
0: That so seems hundred, arbitrary and random as well. It's no. like
1: where do these numbers come from? You know, <laughs> even with the hundred to one, I researched and I researched and I researched and was so appalled. At the lack of legislative history in, in implementing the 1986 Anti Drug Abuse Act, but they, they, it has been eliminated somewhat. Um, and then th- there's other laws on the but books. But but
0: but what didn't happen was they didn't go back and and cure all the sentences that had been handed out under the hundred to one.
1: Not until December 2018, when Trump signed the First Step Act. So okay, the First so- Step Act made that eighteen to one retroactive. However. The first step at included additional sentencing reforms related to drugs and federal sentencing that were not retroactive so we have the same situation you know repeating itself we have so new laws on the obama books.
0: goes in and fights for r- diluting the ratio from 100 to one he winds up with a brokered deal of 18 to one crack to powder trump arrives and signs the first step act which has that actually? So the the First Step Act goes back and says, "Okay, look, if you were sentenced, as I'm understanding what you're saying, the First Step Act, among other things, says, if you were sentenced under the hundred to one ratio, we're going to cure that by by setting it at eighteen to one retroactively." Mm-hmm. And did that cause people to be released from prison?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, absolutely. So that's good.
1: It, it was it was solely tied to crack, um, which a majority of People in federal prison serving time for drugs for crack—it was for crack—so it definitely helped people. The first step act was definitely a great first step. Um, I will go further to say it's a limited piece of legislation, and lawyers have had to, you know, just be creative in the court to try to expand the scope of the of the limited piece of legislation. But it has resulted in a lot of people's freedom, you know. And like I said, it did put new laws on the books that helped eliminate some of those mandatory minimums that we talked about. However, it put these new laws on the book and they're not retroactive, you know, so it's,
0: so it didn't kind make things meal. It didn't think it, it would it be fair to say that the first step act didn't make anything worse. It just was incomplete relief with respect to retroactivity.
1: Yes, it did not make anything worse. It was a first step forward and we still have more work to do because now they the first step act did change laws that are not retroactive. So we still have people serving life without parole sentences today under yesterday's drug laws.
0: So if, if there are people serving life without parole sentences in federal prison who if tried and convicted today would not be given life without parole. Absolutely. Any sense of the numbers of people that that category covers? You know, I mean, it's probably not five people. It it may not be 50,000, but I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, that's what I was about to say on the grand scheme of things. It's when we look at this total system of mass incarceration and how over 2 million people on any given day are incarcerated, we're looking at a few thousand, like probably less than 5,000, honestly Okay. that would benefit from retroactivity from a life without parole perspective. In particular, as it relates to the three strikes law, for example, you know, three strikes and you are out. Bill Clinton pushed it very heavy. He had his crime bill, you know, where your third drug crime was mandatory life without parole in federal prison. No matter part
0: of the was that part of the ninety four act that um, went through Congress.
1: It was on the books before the nineteen ninety four crime bill, but it was promoted and encouraged more to under the 94 crime bill. Um, And so, but now, you know, it was no matter what your two priors were for, how old the drug charges were, the quantity, you know, you got mandatory life.
0: So that that led, I mean, and we've all seen the stories where like the third strike was a a blunt. Yeah. Um, And now you've triggered this three strikes life without parole.
1: Yeah, and luckily the first step at, was a remedy for that, and now it's not mandatory life for your third strike anymore. It's 25 years minimum, which is still a lot of time, but your two priors have to be serious, and the law defines serious. They've raised the yeah, bar. they've what raised the bar.
0: and lower, So they've lowered the life without parole to 25 and raised the – the prior, uh, the threshold for what qualifies as a prior,
1: yes, which is a great first step. The problem now is did, it's not retro, you, uh, The problem is this, it's not retroactive.
0: Okay, how does this get from? I mean, and I don't, I don't really want to play politics, but I mean, this is political stuff. How did this not? How did this not get done during the Obama administration? And now it's getting done. What what was what what happened
1: under the Obama administration? Um, he had a Republican-controlled Senate, so Obama had these same laws, if you will. Um, Congress members of Congress had presented the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act under President Obama, which included the exact same reforms as the First Step Act, retro, except they were retroactive. And it just never even got brought to the floor for a vote um, by a Republican speaker, you know, speakers of the house or, or Mitch McConnell, you know, I'm just gonna be honest. The First Step Act is truly a watered-down version of the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, and unfortunately, Congress obstructed that bill from being passed under Obama. There's no other way to even describe it.
0: Was the difference then that they – it sounds like the significant difference that got it to the floor was the elimination of at least some of the retroactive elements? Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, we live in an imperfect world, and compromise is what it is. but it, so what, what do you hope is next? What, what are you out there advocating? What reform or change are you, are you hoping to see happen next?
1: Yeah. I'm hoping that we get to a world where freedom isn't a matter of compromise or convenience and that we can get some retroactivity and those really great reforms, um, push forth in the first step act. I think there are some great laws that, um, were changed that were necessary. And that they, the first step, the second step for that, if you will, they have to be made retroactive. They have to be.
0: Okay. Well, uh, anything else you want to cover?
1: No, I think we pretty much hit a, a lot of it. You know, the main thing is that many, many people, many people in this country are impacted by the criminal justice system including taxpayers who may not have firsthand experience with the system, but their tax dollars are going to a system that is flawed. And what I really try to convey in my book, A Knock at Midnight, is that to truly drive change, we have to see the heartbeats behind those numbers. And we have to truly you know, humanize this issue in a way, you know, where we do see the beauty and brilliance of the Sharonda Joneses of the world, we just have to find a way to end this brutal cycle because our collective future depends on it.
0: Yeah. So there's, there's a, um, there's a mercy element to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that'll get some people on board. Um, and it, and it, it touches me that way, but, um, I can make the, I can make a strictly pragmatic argument to shift our effort and money from, um, third three strike laws and life sentences without parole and so on and into something that will actually um, drive down the the um, the, the the crime um, and that you know like you said the education the healthcare, care um, job opportunities training um, investment and so on um, it'll take a while it, it won't happen in a year um, you know, we didn't create this situation, uh, I mean, and I'm not, I'm not qualified to, to, to say precisely, but it seems to me like if we started now, we're probably two or three generations from actually seeing the, the, the fruit of that tree if we were to start really investing in our people um, because incarcerating our people doesn't seem to be working 40 years later or 400 if you or however you want to measure
1: exactly no you're you're absolutely right i think that if we take a true look at it at the system itself we'll see that it's just not it's not working and we we need systemic change and you know i, I truly believe in just reallocating some of those dollars to to other other areas and i think education should be number one i think there's even stats out there i want to say it's that there's some stats where you can tell by third grade reading level whether someone is likely to go to prison or not. And being able to really stop that school to prison pipeline is, is crucial. And we have to invest in our education system to be able to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, um is there anything that we should be looking for as a follow up from you? Or have you got a case that's about to break the right way or something I should check back with you on in a month or six months?
1: Yeah, you know, we're working every day. Since I left corporate law, I co-founded the Buried Alive Project. It's a nonprofit, and we provide pro bono legal representation for people serving life for drug offenses in federal prison. And so we have so far saved over 50 lives, people who have survived over 1,000 years in federal prison. And, you know, we're working every day. You know, since you're a,
0: since you're an analytical type, let me ask you this 50, um, what is your recidivism rate? It, I'd be shocked if it were zero, but, uh, of the 50, how many, how many have managed to, to go the right direction?
1: 50, we have really? zero recidivism for life lifers who have been released wow. in our program. No one has gone back to prison.
0: All right. That's amazing. Yep. Are you just no, picking the right? No you, one. Like, are you vetting these cases <laughs> for that purpose or?
1: No, absolutely. We're vetting them just for freedom, you know, uh, period. How do
0: you ex- I mean, like. How, yeah,
1: no, we have how had, had no them. no one go back to prison.
0: That's, a, I mean, 50, like not five, 50. 50 so again, again, I'm not a statistician, but at some point your experience demonstrates validity, right? Like. 50 yeah. out of 50 released from a life without parole sentence have not uh, returned to jail.
1: And if you look at it, there's 50 people who've served over a thousand years. So just doing quick math, they've served average 20 years each. God. And so, you know, it just shows. which
0: By, by which time, the, the, the institutionalization and the lack of skills and the, the, the world passing them by while they've been locked up. All those things are 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 lined up against their success upon release.
1: Yes, and they're still doing very doing very very well. And I I assume
0: there's a significant support network that you do. You also provide like when they get out. You don't just pat them on the back and say good luck.
1: Oh no, absolutely not. We don't have a a robust reentry system in place, but they do have family. Like people aren't coming out. With to to no one or nothing. They have families that have been waiting for decades for them to come home that support them. There are reentry organizations that we will match some of them with if necessary, you know, and and we're just really, you know, grateful and and happy that everyone is doing well and thriving, you know, and being productive citizens of society that it it didn't take, you know, 20 years of their lives to, to get there.
0: So let me close with this. Were you there when Sharonda was released?
1: I was on FaceTime with her daughter.
0: Okay. And yeah. what was that? I mean, were you able, uh, have you been able to see her in person since she was released?
1: Oh, Sharonda's one of my best friends. She lives right down the street from me and I see her once a week and probably talk to her every single day on the phone. So we are very, very close. We are definitely family had a very unique and remarkable journey that I talk about in the book and yeah, I I see her all the time and each time I see her, I just marvel in the fact that she's free. She really is free.
0: That's awesome. Well, Brittany, the book is A Knock at Midnight. It's available at your local bookstore or Amazon or Audible. Um, thank you for doing this. Uh, keep up the good work and let me know if there's something, if, if something else happens that you'd like to, to get out there.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right.
0: You know, I can't help but observe that if um, if a thousand Claire Huxtables decided to become Brittany Barnett's, the whole world would be better. Uh, there's a lot to think about there. Um, how, how we as a society spend our money, how we prioritize lives. Um, There's a lot there. Hope you found it thought-provoking and informative. Um, If you like what I'm doing, please do hit the subscribe, the like, refer it to other people that might listen. If you think you might be a good guest or no one, let me know. Um, Until next time, this is Dana McClendon, and this has been Ready for Trial.